Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman. There's a lot going on in state and local news, and it's moving fast. That's why at the end of the week, WBEZ brings you Reset's Friday News Roundup. This week, the most powerful man in Illinois politics was feeling the heat like never before. State Rep Stephanie Kifowit of Oswego and Kelly Cassidy of Chicago make seven Illinois Democrats now calling for Madigan to resign from some or all of his positions. Mayor Lightfoot drew a line in the sand. I've drawn a very hard line. We will not allow federal troops in our city. We will not tolerate unnamed agents taking people off the street, violating their rights uh, and holding them in custody. That's not happening here in Chicago. And Governor Pritzker is facing a dilemma when it comes to the pandemic. Relative to most other states, Illinois has seen real success in handling this pandemic. But it doesn't take long to see that trajectory of success turn around. And right now, things are not heading in the right direction. As always, to help you better understand these stories and how they affect you, we've brought in two veteran journalists this week. And Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst, Laura Washington. Hi, Laura. Hey, great to be with you, Justin. Always a pleasure. Also with us, Charlie Meyerson, veteran journalist and publisher of ChicagoPublicSquare.com, a free daily email newsletter. Charlie, welcome to Reset. Justin, are you okay? I'm okay, I'm okay. I, I asked I asked because the last time you had me on the radio, it turned out, although I didn't know it at the time, to be your last show on WGN. So <laughs> That's right. I, I was didn't kind of you. nervous when I got the call this time. Are, are we cool? We're cool. That's that's a good good. one. I'm I'm glad that you're superstitious about that, Charlie. I appreciate that. (laughs) Let's jump into the biggest news story of the week. Seven Democrats have turned on House Speaker Mike Madigan, considering his decades-long iron grip on the party. This was more than a shock. Laura, what's the latest on this story? Well, the latest is actually there was another another call just this morning from Yoni Pizer, who uh, represents a a north side district in, in the Lakeview area, and he's actually a, a openly gay representative who's only taken office uh, just earlier this year because he, he's replacing Sarah Feigenholz, mm-hmm. who w- went over to the Senate. He is a lame duck because he didn't win the yeah, nomination the primary, in the, right. in the uh, spring primary. So there's another one, another one uh, lining up, but there's, they have been lining up slowly all week. And as you point out, Madigan says he's staying put. The interesting thing is, of course, that these are, as you know, mostly women. And part of that is because many of the women legislators have already been furious and, and voted for bear on Madigan, going back to his handling of the sexual harassment scandal from a year and a half or so ago. So they've already voiced their disapproval and dissatisfaction with Madigan's leadership, so doubling down in that sense. And the other thing is that some of these women are in, in pretty safe seats and they don't have to worry about re-election. They don't have to worry about Madigan's help. So that's another factor. House GOP leader Jim Durkin also calling on Madigan to resign. That's not surprising. But uh, the speaker is holding out. He's, he's been through more uh, when it comes to investigations or scandals. He's He says, you know what, I'm getting positive support. I'm going to keep, the, keep this chair. Charlie, you covered, you know, Chicago news, Illinois news for so many years. It's not surprising that the speaker is saying, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm not going to resign. No, it's, it's not. Uh, and, you know, he has lots of power. He has lots of political momentum behind him. 
it may well be that he can withstand this storm. But um, th- this certainly, I would say, is up there with all the challenges he's faced in his decades and decades uh, atop uh, Illinois Democratic political power structure. Right. And Laura, when we think about, you know, you're going to obviously you're going to get GOP leaders who are going to want him out. And, you know, uh, and and as you mentioned, I mean, we're talking about seven or eight different leaders or, or Democrats in, in Springfield. He's always been defiant. He's always been the guy who says, I don't really care what anybody thinks. I'm doing what I'm doing. He's never, I mean, I can't think of a moment in which he has kowtowed to any sort of pressure, any sort of political pressure where, you know, someone says he should, he should do something and he does it. He's just not that kind of politician. Well, he's not. He's very disciplined. He's, and he's very much, as, as Charlie points out, he is all powerful up until now. He has been the most powerful, longest serving uh, House Speaker, Legislative Speaker in the nation, he has his rank and file solidly behind him. Not necessarily because they're in love with him or they like his style or they like the way he governs, but because he has that power, because he's able to raise millions and millions of dollars uh, in campaign funds, which he can then spread around for legislative races to keep his rank and file in office and keep them on board. And I think that's one reason why, even though I'm surprised at the number of people that have spoken up this week, but obviously the vast majority folks are still silent, and the reason why is because we have a November election coming up, and many of these people want to make sure they get reelected. They want to make sure his support is there for that. But they also have legislative agendas that they want to get through Springfield that they need his yeah, power right. and his clout to get through. And, you know, I mean, there are other people who could, could, could help in that, that cause, who could take on a leadership role, but nobody who has the, the skill and the finesse and the, and the and experience that a Mike Madigan has. So they're, they're all looking at their backs and, and making sure that they can get what they need, at least until November. It's an interesting analog to what's happening nationally with the Republican Party and, and Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's very similar. But the, the difference, and maybe, maybe this changes, Charlie, maybe, maybe this is ushering in a new movement of, of Illinois politics. I think that, that voters across the board, uh, year after year, talk about uh, term limits or, or the idea of there, there's someone shouldn't necessarily be at the top of a, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a political party and they just stay there. I mean that's that's very old school politics, and and is it possible that maybe we'll see a change in in the way that uh, Democrat politics works in Chicago and and in the state of Illinois if if uh, if he if he leaves that post and and others get a shot at it? Justin, it's twenty twenty. Anything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> right? That would be you, the... you, you know, Justin. I think part of it is what, what Charlie, Charlie points out. We are in twenty twenty, and right now, unfortunately, for people who are interested in and good government and democracy, uh, Mike Madigan's power is not the most important thing on people's minds right now. They're worried about their, their, their unemployment running out. They're worried about going hungry. They're worried about the, the, the COVID-19 disaster. Yeah. So uh, whether, you know, I, I suspect there's not a lot of outpouring, at least from most legislative districts, from, the, from these people's constituents to call for his head because they just, they just have other fish to fry right now, yeah. the voters, I mean. Well, you know, there's so much that goes into this story. It's such a great political story, but it's also one that affects everybody because it's about uh, at the at the core about a utility company that bribes state officials. And now there are questions about whether or not those rate hikes that went through for uh, the last couple of times that that they asked for them, uh, if those should be rescinded, if uh, taxpayers are the ones that are on the hook for uh, what what has become a legal activity. 
The city's contract with ComEd is about to end. Where, where, where do we see this going? What, where does the city stand when it talks uh, about the utility giant? I know that they're, they're starting to have these. Uh, we were talking about, Lisa's been talking about all morning, this idea of, of the ComEd committee hearings that are happening. Mayor Lightfoot has said that she's going to hold ComEd's feet to the fire. She's going to demand answers in terms of the scandal and, and what they've done to address the irregularities and the, and the ethics problems, but, and that she's going to hold their franchise agreement over their heads, and, and, she's, and the per- perception is that she's threatening to, to remove them and to have the city take over that agreement. But I don't think that's very re- realistic right now. I, I just think, don't think the city is in a position financially or in terms of its bandwidth to be able to, to take right. over from ComEd. But the mayor and legislative leaders can certainly demand changes. Yeah, Charlie. And they will. I keep an eye on this class action lawsuit that's been filed against Commonwealth Edison. And I, I believe it's been WBEZ's reporting that's noted that, you know, ComEd has said it's going to offer its settlement in this case uh, out of its profits and will not take the money from uh, its ratepayers, the customers. But uh, the lawyers behind the class action suit say those profits come from ratepayers. So who really is paying this settlement of Commonwealth Edison's uh, wrongdoing? Let's make a transition to the national politics. We rarely do this in the, in the news roundup, but yesterday a tweet goes out. President Trump says it, that he, he questions whether or not we should delay the election. And Charlie, I want to start with you on this. That you know, obviously he said it in in a, in a tweet, and he put a question mark around it. Maybe delay. He put uh, multiple question marks. Multiple after. question marks. But you know, as we know, we're we're four years into the Trump administration. That when he's uh, that's essentially the public record when when he goes to Twitter and social media. What's your response to the fact that the president put that out on social media? Uh, you know, my response is irrelevant, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty clear that the Constitution uh, and federal law say that he can't do this on his own. And it's been interesting and unusual that a number of Republicans of national prominence around the country have been quick to say that ain't going to happen. Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who is, you know, about as Republican as they come said, uh, it doesn't matter what one individual in this country says. We're a country based on the rule of law, and we want to follow the law. Uh, Liz Cheney, who leads the House Republican Conference, said the resistance to this idea among Republicans is overwhelming. So it looks like a non-starter. But are you surprised, Laura, that Republicans came out like this? Because even even some, I mean, ultra-conservative uh, members who've, who've always been uh, behind and loyal to the president, uh, I really come out to admonish this, even skirting around it. I mean, here in Illinois, it was re- I think it was uh, Congressman uh, Kinzinger who came out mm-hmm. and said, no, no, we're not we're not even starting that conversation. Are you surprised <laughs> that the Republican Party pushed back so much on that tweet? I would remind you, Congressman Kinzinger has been a critic of the president in the past. He hasn't been you know, he hasn't been drinking the Kool-Aid quite as much as some, maybe some of his colleagues. But, other, but the others, I mean, it's just a non-starter. It's just not acceptable or not possible on its face. Even if they wanted to agree to this, it's not, it, it, the president does not have the power to do this. The power is in the hands of, the, of Congress and in the hands of the Constitution. So it's an easy, I think this is an easy get for them. And I also think, as you suggested earlier, that that Trump's not necessarily serious when he says he thinks or he can stop the election. What he is doing is a couple things. One is he's continuing to undermine the credibility of the electoral process, which he has been doing all along in terms of questioning mail-in ballots, in terms of questioning the Postal Service. So this is just another example of him trying to raise doubts, particularly among his base, about the integrity of the election. So if things don't right. go his way, 
he has an argument to make. And, and the other thing is that, you know, he, we, we had really bad GDP numbers yesterday. We had really bad numbers on the, on the state of our economy, historically bad numbers. And he's also very good about trying to change the subject by making news through Twitter. It will, it will take away conversation from the news that he doesn't want to see, it doesn't want to discuss, to something that, 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 yeah. that he has more control over. So <laughs> I think that's what was going on yesterday. Yeah, that's and, what and we're we'll doing. And we'll move on to the next crisis uh, probably later this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, right. But Charlie, th- th- you know, I, I did see some great analysis just about, you know, this is really about mail-in voting. We know we're going to be doing mail-in voting and he wants to, to plant the seed early that uh, it's fraudulent, that it's go- the numbers that come out if he does indeed lose in November are going to be questioned and challenged. And this is kind of the right way to do it if, the, if that's really your intent is to quickly, before we even get close to voting, say that you don't trust it and essentially say to his own followers, don't trust it either. Yeah, I you know we can dismiss it as just another tweet or another distraction from the president. But uh, you know we've all heard the phrase: if someone tells you who they are, uh, believe them. And and if Trump is at least talking about this, uh, I think it would be wrong to dismiss it as something that that he will never attempt, never try to make happen. I want to talk about the police. You know, it's been I realized this. Uh, this is a 100 days of uh, Superintendent David Brown. Uh, what a what a 100 days, Laura, <laughs> yes. to be uh, the, the superintendent to come in or the, the police chief to come in and to, to actually have to take over uh, when obviously there's a pandemic, but then uh, violence numbers that are historically high. Where, where do you put the, the when we talk about the police chief and, and the work he's done in the first 100 days? What's, what's your thought? What grade would you give him? Wow. Well, I would give him probably a C. Uh, he's tried very hard. I think in terms of assessing this, you have to go back to the early days of his tenure, to that first press conference when he was introduced, and he made his case for how he was going to change the policing in Chicago. And that famous line that he uttered, and when I heard it, I cringed, that, you know, we're going to have a moonshot in Chicago. When I get in here and get, get control of this police department, we're going to turn this police department around. We're going to turn crime around. We're going to get the numbers down to historical lows. He's had to eat those words now. And I think it was maybe uh, maybe inexperienced, although he's comes from a very, he has very experienced policing background. But to come into a city knowing at that time that we were facing COVID, knowing that we've, we've been facing rampant crime for years, and knowing that the summer's coming, and to make that kind of a claim, I think, was unwise especially when you haven't really gotten your arms around the police department yet. But, you know, he's, he's made some, some important moves. He's reorganized a, a lot of different uh, units in the, in the department. He's, as I said, he's trying very hard, but he's just facing, not to mention the protests, he's facing the kinds of challenges that I don't think any police superintendent in Chicago has ever had to face at one time. Yeah, and Charlie, the, the police have been in the news and, and constantly in the news for the last couple of weeks, and, and even last night, uh, the terrible story of three police officers who were shot uh, while processing or bringing in uh, uh, someone who was accused of being a violent carjacker. Somehow he still had his gun, uh, shot three police officers. He was shot as well. But that that is a, a story. I mean, it just feels like, you know, there's a lot of news surrounding the police department right now. Yeah, I, I think I think Laura nailed it in her analysis, although I might I might give him an incomplete rather than a C at this point. Okay, let's flip things a little here and talk about COVID-19. Cases seem to be rising here in Illinois. I want to play a clip from the governor in just a second. But, Charlie, when you see numbers like today, similar to those from May, what do you make of this? 
I think 2020 continues to deliver on its promise as the worst year ever. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a scientist. The scientists have been warning us for months now that, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be a simple in and out kind of crisis. And, and we're seeing those projections come true. Let me play that Pritzker clip before I ask you the same question, Laura. Mike, can you play the uh, danger point clip? Relative to most other states, Illinois has seen real success in handling this pandemic. But it doesn't take long to see that trajectory of success turn around. And right now, things are not heading in the right direction. What do you think of that, Laura? Because the idea that you would turn around and you would you would possibly go back to restrictions, some restrictions we may have seen in May and June, yes. it's a tough pill to swallow for, for Illinoisans. I think so, but I think he's very he's, he's deadly serious. I think that he's really trying to send us a warning signal, and it could be as soon as next week that we're going to be looking at new restrictions. Just, this, just today, the new numbers for the day are out, and and now we're up to, I think the, the, the total number of cases overnight was 1,900. We're close mm. to 2,000 cases, which is well over what we were two months ago, 21 deaths. And the positivity rate has ticked up again. It's been a trend for the last several weeks now. We are not out of the woods. Uh, there, there are all kinds of restrictions still in place. But what the governor has been emphasizing again and again is behavior. And I think that that's, that's the message he's trying to send, the masking, the social distancing, we're not doing enough, and I'm very concerned about it because it seems that people are already starting to relax. Because we're, we seem to mm-hmm. come through the worst of the spring, people are thinking that we moved on. But as, but as has been mentioned, the scientists have been warning that this is not going to be an easy thing to move from, and that we're probably going to have resurgences. We've seen that in other parts of the country, which is why we have quarantines here. And I think we may be seeing that here more in the, in the coming week. Well, Charlie, when you think of the city of Chicago, they've been proactive in trying to create emergency quarantine lists uh, from states uh, you can't travel to and from without quarantining for two weeks. And this week, which is so surprising, but it makes sense, the state of Wisconsin was added to that list. And and to say there's even a border between Illinois and Wisconsin, that's questionable. I mean, there's so many commuters <laughs> that come in from Racine and Kenosha and that area. People go day trips to Lake Geneva to Twin Lake, whatever it might be, there is definitely a symbiotic relationship between Wisconsin and Illinois and the city of Chicago. So how does that even work? Well, I, I don't know. And, and you know, WBEZ, I, I have to tip my hat to your team doing some, some nice reporting, going out to uh, Millennium Park and just quizzing people who are there to see the bean or cloud gate, as we sometimes call it, <laughs> and finding out there, you know, the place is, is rife with People from out of state who are here despite quarantine orders and either ignorant of or ignoring those orders. And, you know, I can't really blame them because if I were to ask you, Justin, uh, mm-hmm. which other states can you go to now freely and which can't you? Yeah, I, you I know? don't know. I don't I wouldn't know. I, you know, I don't know. And, and that's really symptomatic of our nation's lack of a cohesive national policy. We have these piecemeal rules that have been implemented at the city, the state, county level, and, uh, you know, expecting people to know what the rules are, wherever they are, whenever they are, is is unrealistic. Laura, I, I'm blown away. And when we were we were hearing from the Chicago Department of Public Health and the mayor, there was this concerted effort. It is a it's not enforceable, this quarantine, but they sure. said they're going to monitor your social media. If you're putting up photos from Door County or you're up in Waukesha and you're saying, I'm having a great time, they will be monitoring your social media and they could they could levy a fine. That that blows come, my mind. 
come on, Justin. Yes, they could, and they say they will. The city of Chicago is saying that, but come on. <laughs> Do you really think that that's going to be very effective? First of all, monitor social media. Then you have to find the person. Then you have to prove that, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not realistic that you can really enforce right. these quarantines, and that's one reason why people are ignoring them, unfortunately. I think Lori Lightfoot had it right when she said at the beginning of this quarantine decision that it's about public education. It's about letting people know what the risks are and where the risks are, and, and, and maybe people will think twice. Maybe I, I was thinking about going to Lake Geneva a couple of weeks ago. I didn't go right, because right. I didn't want to have to – this is before the quarantine. I didn't want to have to deal with you know the dangers that, that suggested so I think she she is hoping that people that this will curb some behavior. It's not going to stop all the behavior. It's not going to change people's minds who really don't want to abide by the by the rules. The same people who don't want to wear a mask, but at least it might reduce the risk for some people. And I also think that uh, it it has some political consequence. We saw the the Wisconsin. I think it was the governor do a mask mandate. They changed course. Maybe there is some Absolutely. political implications to the fact that if you're not on board, you're gonna, you're not going to get that tourism that's coming from Chicago did an excellent review of all the rules connected to the quarantines. And there's so many, there's more exceptions than there are rules. So if you work across the border, right. you don't necessarily have to buy by it. If you live in the suburbs and not in the city, you don't necessarily have to buy by it. But it's very confusing and it's very difficult to expect anybody to be able to follow it all. Let's get into this story. The Tribune this week <laughs> decided that they were going to move their columnists from the uh, page twos and the page threes and move them to the back of the printed page, all the way to the back, to help in this this way of of delineating between what's news and what's editorial. What's your thought on that? Well, man, <laughs> the focal point of all this has been a lot of complaining about John Cass's column and his position on page two. And the paper has... Uh, made clear in its official statements that that this move has been long in the works and is not a result of complaints about some of John Cass's writings. And yet it provides a nice convenient out from this awkward position for the paper with its lead columnist under fire. If I rule the world, I, I'm not sure I would do what the Trib has done, which is gather all of its opinion columns in the back of the front section. I like to see opinion presented in context alongside on the same page with the actual news story mm. instead of making readers who care about something you know look everywhere in the paper to find out about that thing i like to do it the way we do it at chicagopublicsquare.com <laughs> laura you're a columnist uh, what do you think of the, the the move by uh your competing paper to make a distinction between the news and the columns I just have to give a hat tip to Charlie. That was a nice plug you got in there, Charlie. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. I practiced. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> you know, I think um, newspaper readers are educated people. They know the difference between Mary Schmeek and John Cass and a news story. And moving those opinions to a different part of the newspaper is, I think, really patently unnecessary. You have to also remember that newspaper readers are different from the readers right. of Charlie's column, where where placement does make a difference because... We flip through the pages. So that, I think, is the real message behind the Tribune's move, to remove John Cass from page two, the, the hallowed spot where every newspaper columnist from for all time wants to be, 
who, back in the book with other columnists, basically makes a statement that they're demoting him, that they're changing his status for, for whatever reason. So I think that that's the, tri- the message the tribute was trying to send. I think readers get it. If they want to continue to read John Cass and agree with John Cass, they're going to do that no matter where he is in the paper. And Charlie, he came back, and instead of saying, I apologize if I offended, or he came in and said, I'm not going to bow or cow to cancel culture. How do you feel about that? First of all, I want to say John has been spewing nonsense on national politics for years. I do find his cynicism towards state and local politics occasionally insightful. But, you know, I I think that he is, frankly, not a very good writer. And uh, I I think that came back to bite him in this case. And Laura, for for you, I mean, when when columnists get accused of things uh, like this, it's, it's it's a longstanding tradition in Chicago newspapers. Sure. But as a politic or as a columnist yourself, I mean, that, when you go through that, there is this give and take with the audience. There is this, uh, you know, kind of you have to react. But how how do you see this kind of playing out? You're right. That is the mission of a columnist to engage people in conversation and to get people to debate with you. You know, people will say to me, you know, I, you know, I, I like your column. I don't always agree with you, but I, I like the way you write. I like what you had to say. Well, that's great. I don't. If you're always agreeing with me, what's the point? Mm-hmm. You, you're right. trying to bring people along. You're trying to get people to think differently. I think that's what John Cass and all columnists do. Sometimes they do it better than others. As Charlie points out, sometimes the point gets lost in the way it was it was handled. But he has the right to express his opinion. And believe me, there's plenty of folks out there that agree with his opinion on this particular column and many others. And that's, that's the way it should be. Laura Washington and Charlie Meyerson, thanks for joining us today, breaking down these stories for us. Really appreciate it. And that's a wrap for our Reset Friday News Roundup from WBEZ. Like what we covered, how we covered it, what did we miss? Send us an email at reset at wbez.org and tell us what you think. And look for more great Reset Conversations each weekday in this feed and every morning at 11 on 91.5 WBEZ. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll talk again next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.